Well, I am actually going to start this morning talking to our kids and teens, in case there's any that are still in here. Awesome. Um, very cool. So, kids and teens, anyone 12th grade or below, question for you. Why does every school hold fire drills? What are they trying to accomplish with a fire drill? You're not in 12th grade or below, Brendan. 12th grade or below. Somebody, give me a note. Why do you guys have fire drills? To To prepare you for a real fire. Thank you, Charlotte. Yes. Why do you have tornado drills? To prepare you so you know what to do if suddenly a tornado is coming to school, right? And it's the same thing with lockdown drills and everything like that. They're all to prepare you to know how to respond in those different emergency situations, right? You practice them because emergencies happen suddenly without any warning. And so you need to know, you need to be trained on what to do because one day, God forbid, it could happen. And you might need to respond immediately for your safety, if not the safety of others as well. And you practice because you can't know when it'll happen. So you need to be trained so you're ready to respond. Now, everyone in the room, regardless of grade and age, Uh, What if you were told something will happen? Not just like a threat is called in, but like God says, this catastrophe will happen. First of all, I expect we'd try to figure out if there's a way to avoid it. We'd probably warn other people. But what if God says it is unavoidable? This is right down the street for you. It's It's coming. There's no avoiding it. Well, we'd prepare as best we can, probably still warn people, and stay alert. And that's what we find in Daniel 8, the vision in Daniel 8 and the explanation. Uh, he receives his second vision, sort of a follow-up to the one in Daniel 7, and God is pronouncing things that will happen. They are unavoidable. In fact, Daniel 8 teaches us that God is sovereign over the succession of world powers, and he prepares his people to endure the suffering they cause. Daniel teaches us that God is sovereign over the succession of world powers, and he prepares his people to endure the suffering they cause. And before we go any further, diving into the word, I actually have more set up before we get to the word, but let's just pray both for God to, uh, to help to move as I preach, help me preach, and for all of us to receive and apply what he has to say. So let's pray together. Father, thank you again for everything that we can just trust you with, everything Art was bringing to you, and that we can rest, even even if we're dying, that you will hold us fast and you won't let us go. That, That that one last hurdle, though it may hurt, is temporary and we go through it and you've still got us. Lord, please lead me to say what you want said and not say what you don't want said. Please help everyone, including me, to receive what you want said, to really have our souls preached to and, and, and confronted or encouraged or transformed or all of the above. Please have your way in this time, Lord. Please speak by your spirit. Use your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So if you have a Bible, let's go ahead and prep for that. Go ahead and turn to Daniel 8. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there is one under your seat or under the seat next to you. And if you don't own one personally, 
That's our gift to you. Consider that your Bible now. Put your name in it, take it home with you, read it every day. We would just love to have that be a gift for you so that you can engage God through his word whenever and wherever. So anyway, if you're in those, in those Bibles, the community Bibles, it's going to be page 745. If you're not familiar with the scriptures, when you get to page 745, there's going to be a giant eight on it, and that's where we'll start. But now to give you a little sense of what's going on, uh, at this point in the book of Daniel and with this series of visions that he's been receiving or, or he will be receiving. He's only gotten one so far, right? Imagine a microscope, okay? When you look through a microscope, the reality that you're very used to seeing with your naked eye is transformed. It seems undone. Like, I know when I took biology in 10th grade, I just didn't like it because I came out of class feeling very fragile, you know, just because now I know how the stuff works. And, it, you know, but anyway, when you, when you look through a microscope, Reality seems to change because your perspective changes, right? When I was a kid, I had one with different lenses. You could rotate into place. You may have used one like this at some point. Um, and each lens provides a, a greater magnification than the last, right? So when you turn to the next higher-powered lens, you see a different focus, you see things bigger, your subject is bigger, as things get clearer, you might see some things you didn't see before as you turn the lens. And while this isn't a perfect analogy, I think it's a helpful frame to consider as we continue to go through these series of visions that Daniel's going to get, um, which, you know, today, there's some things that are going to be elaborating on from chapter 7 a little bit, there's going to be some things that are left out. And then in the weeks to come, more will be added. We'll see things, you know, in more detail, different stuff like that. So today, we'll explore chapter 8 in three stages. One, the vision revealing that God's people will be enduring exiles. Two, God's purpose in showing this vision to Daniel, which is informing God's people they should prepare to be enduring exiles. And three, the application for us, his people today, we are still God's enduring exiles. So let's jump right into it with the vision. God's people will be enduring exiles. This vision is to, to let Daniel know God's people will be enduring exiles. Now, this is actually one of the simplest visions in this book, and I'm very grateful to the grace of God for Mitch, uh, allowing me to preach this one. Uh, I did actually make it a condition of preaching this month, so... Um, Anyway, uh, I'm grateful for that. And the fact is that there's an actual explanation from an angel for this chapter, which makes it very helpful, um, <laughs> which is why I wanted to do this one. Um, but it may also be helpful to point out that before wading into the imagery itself, that not only are all the animals pictured normal animals, there's not like four-headed leopards and lions with wings and stuff like that. They're all goats and rams and stuff. Um, there is some wonky stuff going on with the horns of these animals. And uh, really, the horns are the point. In fact, most of the action happens with the horns um, because they all represent rulers in one way or another, no exceptions. So there's going to be a lot of horns involved, but no crazy animals. Uh, and so it, lastly, instead of handling this, this, this text start to finish, starting with verse 1, ending with verse 27, we're actually going to arrange it by this part of the vision and then Angel Gabriel's explanation and then the next part of the vision and then the Gabriel explanation and stuff, just because I think it'll be a little more expeditious and helpful, and even though it's not normal. Uh, so with that, we're going to start by reading 1 through 4, 
and then jump down to 15 to 20. And this is dealing with the Medo-Persian Empire. Spoilers. No, just kidding. All right, so here we go. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now we go to verse 15 through 20, and of course there's a little bit of setup for the explanation like there was for the vision. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near me, he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O man, that this vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall, what shall be the latter end of the indignation, for it, in, in, it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. All right. So Daniel starts by describing the setting of his vision. He he, he, it repeats this thing of him seeing in the vision, and when he saw, and then he saw, and so he's kind of realizing, oh, I'm having a vision. Oh, and oh, I'm in Susa. Okay, so he, he sets up, he's in Susa, the citadel city kind of place uh, that's 220 miles away from Babylon, and it will become eventually the future winter residence of the Persian kings. Uh, and it's in modern-day Iran, which, of course, is Persia. Um, and the location is significant probably because it was outside of the Babylonian Empire and near the center of future power. And this signaled that there, in this vision, that uh, this vision is centered on something else besides Babylon taking controls, a, a force bigger and, and not Babylon coming on the scene. And then as Gabriel explained, uh, this is predicting the Medo-Persian Empire, which is, of course, going to supplant Babylon and the near world in the relatively near future, about 10 years after this vision. I mean, uh, Belshazzar was co-regent for 13 years, and this is in the third year of his reign, so minus, uh, not, not constituting for other ways of calculating things, it should be about 10 years. Um, so the ram's invincibility well describes the spread of this regime. And there, basically, it's just saying there will be a change of power in Babylon where God's people are still captives. This is coming, and it'll affect them. The longer and shorter horns of the Medes and Persian, of, of the, the goat, the male sheep, the ram, that, that uh, one was bigger and one was smaller, uh, was because the Medes were the ones initially in power, but then the Persians quickly overshadowed them in this, in this empire that was kind of a conglomeration. And the short and simple imagery describes them to a T, and as a cherry on top, 
Gabriel calls him by name. Just so nice. They weren't on the scene yet. They weren't any big deal yet. But this is coming in. It's the, it's the kings of Mede and Persia. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go on with verses 5 through 8. And then 21 to 22. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. It it came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And jump down to 21 and 22. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horns that, horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but none with his power. So next we see a goat, also you know, potentially translated shaggy goat, which doesn't make any difference, but I think it's fun. Um, Gabriel inf- uh, helpfully informs you know, Daniel and us that this is the Greek empire sweeping over the world with the first king represented by a conspicuous or what were the other ways, other trans- prominent horn or a very large horn Uh, between its eyes, whether that means instead of two horns here, it was here, so it's kind of symmetrical, or it's actually, you know, here, doesn't really matter. It's this big horn, not in the right place, and coming out, you know, goat's horns aren't usually huge, so making a big point, no pun intended, of this horn on his head. And uh, from history, we know this is Alexander the Great, whose story, like the Medes and Persians, is identified very well with this very simple and brief imagery. Um... And now we're seeing his irresistible uh, domination sweep across the earth. This is the fourth great empire from that uh, historical prophets chart we handed out a few weeks ago, courtesy of Ron Linton. We had the Assyrians and then the Babylonians and then the Medes and Persians, and now Greece is coming on the scene. Um, And it's going to be a while before they even start to make their mark. So... Now, for how big, think about this, just notice this, for how big of a historical figure Alexander the Great is or was, he gets like a sentence from Gabriel. Just find that very interesting. And part of the reason for that is he's not the point of this vision. Succession of things, he's included on purpose. It's, it's, you know, it's good to know, but he's not the point either. The point comes in the next section because it directly affects Israel herself. In fact, this is the first chapter since chapter 1 of Daniel that's in Hebrew instead of Aramaic. And people have surmised that the best reasoning for that is because now attention is turning back to things that particularly affect Israel directly, as opposed to everything that's been happening in chapters 2 through 7 that are, in Aramaic, the most common language in the world at the time, that we're all pointing towards God's sovereignty over the nations completely. That we're now focusing back closer to home, so to speak, closer to Israel. Um, So in verses 9 through 14 and 23 to 27, which we'll read in just a sec, 
we jump about 150 years after uh, Alexander uh, to a third powerful and evil ruler that is known as Antiochus IV or Antiochus Epiphanes. And he took over the Seleucid kingdom, which was one of the four kingdoms that Alexander's kingdom was broken into, uh, in 175 BC. So now we're looking into the second century BC. It's kind of kind of far. So this king or ruler is the main focus of this vision, which is evidenced by the time and detail that's given to him. Um, and because he directly affects Israel in a way that's only surpassed by Nebuchadnezzar's utter destruction of the temple and carting almost all the people away, and Rome's destruction of the temple and carting all the people away in 70 AD. He's, he's just neck and neck, just beyond that, just, just below that. So let's go ahead and read 9 through 14 and then 23 to the end. Out of one of them, out of one of the four horns, on the, it's kind of interesting, we've just zoomed in on the head of a goat. I don't know if you realize that. So I don't know if the background is furry or, or what, but we, we went from one horn, four horns, still on the forehead. Here we go. So out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And regular burnt offering was, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him. And the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Down to 23. And at the latter end of their kingdom... So this is Gabriel talking to Daniel again now, explaining. At the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, and not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in, all what, he, in, in what he does, and destroy many men and the people who are the saints." By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but not by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days." Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So we'll come back to Daniel's reaction in a bit. But first, did you notice, now we're not talking about animals, just the horns? It's getting a little, little more wonky now, a little, a little more trippy. But this little horn or ruler came out of the four other horns, one of the four other horns that replaced Alexander the Great. And this little horn, it says became a king of bold face, one who understands riddles. The NIV and NLT 
uh, translate that, a fierce king, a master of intrigue. And the NASB calls him insolent and skilled in intrigue. So he was not in line to be king. His nephew was. But through bribery and other underhanded dealings that make him such a man as was described, uh, he managed to usurp the throne for himself. And again, this is significant to the Lord and this prophecy because he even took over the glorious land of Israel. And that is how things start to get messy. I've read it was at least partially in an attempt to become as great as Alexander that Antiochus uh, asserted his dominion so strongly over Israel, not just to conquer the land and their people, but also their culture and their God. And, and turn them to his Hellenist way of life. He was a champion of Hellenism, which is, you know, essentially the, 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 the progressive Greek way of doing things, you know, with the emphasis on philosophy and form and fitness and all those kinds of things uh, that is still present in different ways in the New Testament. This included putting a Greek gymnasium next to the temple in the revived and rebuilt uh, Jerusalem and included forced participation, naked participation, at least once a year, I think it was, uh, for Jewish men in order to make the sign of the covenant embarrassing and shame them because they weren't like the capable Greeks. They weren't like the ones who were you know, put up on the pillar to, in an attempt to maybe influence them to abandon the sign of the covenant and not circumcise their, their, their sons and all that kind of stuff. The reports of Antiochus's brutality in historical sources, including, but definitely not limited to, 1st and 2nd Maccabees in the Apocrypha, is harrowing. He was a monster. In, Gabriel, uh, in verse 24, Gabriel explained that when verse 10 says, some of the host and some of the stars were thrown down and trampled on, that this is what's being foretold. A massive amount of indiscriminate killing of, of God's people, men, women, and children, the army or the host, and the civilians. And add to that, not only was he great in his own mind, because he was certainly proud of himself, he was great to a certain extent in reality. He was allowed to succeed. He kept succeeding. And combining the, uh, the vision and the description, I guess is a good way to say it, the description and explanation in verses 12 and 25, he threw down, he threw truth to the ground and made deceit Prosper. Now he's that certainly reasonably it describes the culture that he's wrought with his own character and, and approach to things, but it likely also refers to the camp, his campaign against the scriptures. Um, historical reports uh, confirm that there were public burnings of the writings of Moses and the prophets, and strict, brutal consequences for anyone who was caught possessing or reading or obeying the scriptures. And I don't know about you, but that sounds to me eerily familiar if you're aware of and praying for the persecuted church today. Um, like this has kind of always been going on. But all this isn't even the worst of it. As verse 10 through 11 and 25 say, as Antiochus became powerful, became so powerful that he thought he could compete with God and conquer God, supplant God and his, his ways, um, this is why Antiochus IV is also known by the name he took for himself at this point, Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. Yes, worship me instead, which he's not the first king to do this over history. You know, we've got pharaohs and Caesars and whatever. You know, 
It's a, it's a trend. But that's where he's at, and that's where he's at in his headspace. He not only stopped the daily sacrifices, like verse 11 says, uh, in terms of that he took them away from God, he also overthrew the sanctuary and trampled on it underfoot, like verse 13 says, which we know from history is not simply like locking the doors or you know, leveling it. He actually uh, set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. And more will be made of this in the coming weeks. But verse 13 even alludes to the transgression that makes desolate, which most likely refers to Antiochus' desecrating the temple by sacrificing an unclean animal to Zeus in the temple, possibly, probably a pig. Uh, I think that's a little bit of conjecture. I'm not 100% sure, but definitely an unclean animal sacrificed to Zeus in the temple. Now, that makes the temple unclean. The temple is now off limits to the Jews because it is now desecrated by the blood of an unclean animal. So it is going to be abandoned by the Jews. It will lay desolate by the Jews until it can be purified. And Antiochus is not going to allow that, right? So what he has done has caused desolation of the temple, even without destroying it. And for anyone wondering, commentators seem to be uh, seem to have trouble agreeing what verse 23 is referring to when it says uh, the transgressions have reached their limit, uh, the transgressors have reached their limit. It's most likely either referring to uh, the sin of the people of Israel uh, of which, for which Antiochus would be a punishment or the general height of transgression in the world at which time Antiochus would have been the pinnacle. But either way, uh, they both work. And lastly, concerning the timing of the 2,300 days mentioned in verse 14. It was an answer from one of the angels who had asked the other angel how long this insanity would go on before the temple would be restored to its rightful state. Now, being restored to its rightful state could sound like all things made new, right? We, we could even be eager to see that in here, meaning the very end of days, uh, but that doesn't hold very well with the context we have here. Uh, at least it's not apparent in the passage. I can understand why people make that, but we're not quite going there yet from what it looks like in this particular passage. Notice that Gabriel does not explain the time frame when he explains the rest of the vision to Daniel. He simply says that the vision is true. Um, and this is, this is to indicate to us that there isn't more explanation needed for this. Um, commentators I read are fairly unanimous that this is a figurative or symbolic number as opposed to uh, 2,300 literal days that the Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in the second century BC could count down until things get better. Like, okay, guys, 631 more days to go. It's it, not that kind of number, more of a symbolic number. And it's best understood in one or maybe even both of two ways. Uh, either the 2,300 days... Uh, which worked out to, work, works out to be 6.3 years, um, is not a complete or perfect number seven. So even if Antiochus is punishment to the Jews for whatever sin, even I think one of the Maccabeans claims he is a punishment for, uh, if you look into those books. But um, even, if, even if he is, it's not going to be a complete punishment. They're not going to be completely wiped out. It will end. It will relent. But a simpler and you know, easier understanding is, regardless of, of the question of the transgression comment, 
is that simply there will be an end to this. It's not going to go on forever. So endure and stay faithful. Now, finally, Antiochus dies, as verse 25 says, by no human hands, but as history tells us, by disease. So at our point in history today, the plain substance of this prophecy is fulfilled. The plain substance of this prophecy is fulfilled. Now, some preachers, commentators, even Bible translators uh, lean a little more into this vision containing stronger eschatological uh, connections, meaning stronger connections to the end of days, the return of Christ. Uh, but from what I can tell, the context and its distinct course through history seems to minimize that. Um, but as Mitch pointed out last week, a vision can have multiple fulfillments, and this one's no different. Pardon me. And the rest of our Daniel series, it will more directly deal with some of these things that are much more apparent in the visions to come. Um, but at here, they're only at best hinted at with some typology. Now, if you don't know what I mean by typology, it's a branch of biblical interpretation in which an element found in the Old Testament prefigures one found in the New Testament. And most of the time, there are others, but most of the time it's it's dealing with Christ and a, a, a type of Christ in the Old Testament pointing to him coming in the New. It's usually some picture of salvation and stuff. Um, the Bible uh, encyclopedia where I got that definition for you actually also includes a warning. It says, in working with types, the safest procedure is to limit them to those expressly mentioned in the Bible. So we really should be cautious when reading too much in here with Antiochus. We should be careful. Um, he certainly is an example of the Antichrist spirit of lawlessness that Paul and John write about happening even in their day uh, in 2 Thessalonians 2 and 1 John 2 and 2 John verse 7. Uh, so it's not a stretch to consider Antiochus a type of the Antichrist, like Moses was a type of Christ, bringing God's people out of enslavement and into freedom and into relationship with him and stuff like that. Um, but it isn't particularly specified in this chapter and seems outside the scope of this vision to really dive into it deeper. So I'm going to stay in my lane and let Mitch dive more into that when it's more apparent. So moving on. That's not the cheating way. I'm not being a chicken. It's just sticking with the text. Anyway, um, so finally, the purpose... God's, not finally, this is just the next point, uh, but the purpose of this vision seems to be God's people should prepare to be enduring exiles. The purpose would be God's people should prepare to be enduring exiles. Now, similar to the 2300 days, remember how Gabriel didn't drill down into every detail of the vision, uh, everything that could be explained? He doesn't explain why one of the ram's horns was higher than the other, but it came up later, uh, or how the little horn would actually go about gaining power or anything like that. Um, it's not that all those details of the vision are unimportant. They're intentionally there. But it does indicate that God had a main purpose and emphasis for Daniel and subsequently for us with these things. And we need to be sure to discern that without overly focusing on the bonus content, if you will, kind of like buying a movie and just watching the, the bloopers and the, the behind-the-scenes stuff without actually watching the movie. So we just, it's all good, but there's a, there's a point, there's a purpose in here. Remember how Daniel was terrified and his face went pale with fear after the first vision last week? This time he's overwhelmed 
and sickened and bedridden for several days. And there's good reason for that. And it leads us into what I believe our best understanding of God's purpose for this vision is. Um, It certainly was not to freak Daniel out or to get under his skin or tell him a good story or impress him or anything like that. Why would this vision bother Daniel so much more than the previous one? As the Gospel Translation Bible notes elaborate, which, by the way, is the source material for our Seeing Jesus in booklets out there. So when we get to Daniel, this will be in there. But as the Gospel Transformation Bible notes elaborate, understanding the vision is not hard. Accepting it is. Why was this vision harder to bear? Possibly because there was no promise of victory, but only a prediction of how things would go. The last one, there was all these things that were going to happen, and then... God's going to show up, the, th- the, the throne will be, he'll sit on his throne, judgment will be happening, the Son of Man will come and give the authority to judge, and it'll, everything will be good after that. Yay, we win in the end. Well, this time, there isn't that. I mean, it's really reasonable that Daniel and faithful Jews of his day would expect, or at least hope, that their kingdom influence and splendor would be returned once they repented of their sin and endured the time of punishment for abandoning the covenant and abandoning the Lord. But I find it most convincing because of the mountain range concept that Mitch shared last week. And if you don't remember or you weren't here, uh, basically the idea is when you come at a mountain range a certain way, all the peaks seem pretty close together. You can even let them kind of merge together at times, and, and it's hard to discern exactly the details of everything when they're, when they're straight on like that. You know, it kind of looks like this. But when you turn and you get to see, oh, there's more peaks, and there are miles apart. There's miles between these different peaks. It's, it's a shift in your perspective, and, I, and that's, that's part of what I think is going on here for Daniel, um, especially as I've been reading Isaiah in, cha- in CBR, even just this week. We know from chapter 9, which we'll hear next week, that Daniel reads Jeremiah's writings, okay? And Isaiah, his prophecies came like uh, at least 150 years before Daniel's vision started coming. So Daniel could have and reasonably would have been very familiar with what Isaiah saw and, and, and said and the mountain range effect that I'm talking about is all over Isaiah's prophecies. Like, like chapter 35 is awesome. And if you expect that's going to come at the end of the exile, it's a shock when it doesn't. Okay? Because that is all about the restoration. I'll get into more in a second. I'm just excited and getting ahead of it. So based on what he knew, Daniel very reasonably expected a glorious restoration after Israel was out of exile. And in fact, for the same reason, I can actually find it more understandable why the Jews of Jesus' day had the expectations that they did of the Messiah for very similar effect. Now, they were also committed to their their perspective and, and, and wanting it that way, so they weren't open to seeing things differently like God shows Daniel here and like Jesus kept saying. So they were stuck there, but I get it more now. So, because they weren't seeing the whole picture. Now, if, and I recognize there's a little bit of conjecture in this, but if Daniel believed a glorious restoration like in Isaiah 35 was to come after the exile, the revelation that there would be many more beastly kings 
to come and that at least one of them would uh, devastate the land, devastate the people, even uh, stop the daily sacrifices, desecrate the temple and, and overthrow it. That would be horrific, like paradigm-crushing news, right? It makes total sense why he would react this way. Now, what God was doing was forewarning Israel through Daniel so that they could plan to endure the many struggles still to come. They needed to know so they could place their hope in the Lord and not count on things they weren't promised, whether certain time frames or the way they may have thought things would work out or expected or preferred. So God certainly did promise that he would one day bring glorious restoration like in Isaiah 35, and he still will do it. He certainly will. But he was showing them more of the mountain range, the real distance between where they were and how far they had to go. And we now know even that was only a number of a few hundred years that he got in this vision, not 2,500 years that we're aware of, okay? So it makes sense that he would react this way. And as it turns out, from the time of their exile, Israel will never again regain the complete independence and majestic stature in any significant way uh, that they had under King David, under King Solomon. Um, in fact, they're going to be ruled by other nations virtually the entire time. So in one sense or another, God's people, then Israel, and now the church, will remain exiles until the ultimate ending, when Revelation 21, 3 through 5 will be fulfilled, which says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live that with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. Look, I am making all things new. That's when we stop being exiles. So if that's the case, the application for us is we, as God's people, are still God's enduring exiles today. We are still God's enduring exiles today. Why does this rather completed prophecy matter for us today? Because we need the same warning, guys. I think this series has made it clear that we are definitely still exiles in the land that's not our home. Like, Pete, like Peter puts it in 1 Peter 2, temporary residents and foreigners, or even exiles, depending on your translation. Uh, the same principle instructs us that was to instruct Daniel and Israel. Be prepared to endure. Be prepared to endure. Now, last week, Mitch made it clear that God's people are a suffering people. Well, enduring means to suffer patiently particularly something painful or difficult. Now, knowing what the Lord has shown us in his whole word and in this chapter, we are called to plan to endure. Suffering's going to wax and wane like it did for Israel and like it historically has for the church. And it's certainly plain to see that it's not being applied, it's not happening equally around the world as we speak. But the knowledge we've been given gives us a choice. Either we live in fear of the suffering and however many number of ways it might come, or we can commit now to endure to the end. To decide ahead of time 
where we stand and who we cling to and how. That's the benefit of knowing ahead of time, of being prepared, of being warned. So when persecution comes into our life in small or in brutal ways, we are prepared to cling to Jesus alone and not our misinformed or unfulfilled expectations and plans. Sadly, some will give up hope as soon as it starts and prove themselves to be the rocky soil from Jesus' parable about the the seeds and the four different kinds of soil, the, the path, the rocky soil, the weedy soil, and the good soil, because they'll fall away when persecution happens. If you're, coming, if you're counting on the end of days of the way things are going to happen, happening in a certain order, in a certain time frame, in a certain whatever your framework is, if you're counting on it going that way, it has to go that way, my question for you is, what if you're wrong? And I'm not ascribing to any particular camp and asking that. I just mean, what? This is, this is complicated when we start getting into these prophecies. What if you're wrong? What is your hope hung on now? Is your hope built on an interpretation of the word or on the author and his power and plan that could turn out differently than you think? So let's all consider the difficulties and disasters in life and not just the persecution that's to come at some point. So when big things hit, like destructive hurricanes, loss of loved ones, pandemics, Uh, mental or physical health struggles, financial blows like skyrocketing insurance rates or job loss, um, overbearing or or, or oppressive governments, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What are you going to cling to? Where do you turn? Will you feel cheated out of what you deserved or thought you were promised? Will you merely turn to natural allies like the government or conventional wisdom or taking matters into your own hands? And it's not that God can't use natural solutions. But the question is, or will you, run, will you start with that and, and rely on the natural option? Or will you run to the Lord and seek his solutions? Which could involve some natural things, of course. But that might involve his people and the resources he's gathered there to help one another survive stay focused, pay the bills, whatever it might be. It may be gaining a quiet inner strength through the Spirit to keep enduring no matter how far this goes and no matter how long it lasts. Will you be able to patiently endure however long the struggle lasts in whatever form the relief may take as far as God plans it? Now, I'm especially excited to talk about the little things. Um, Like if you owe taxes instead of you get a refund this year. Uh, If your job is frustrating. And I'm saying little things. Some of these aren't that little. But they're little things compared to like mass persecution or, you know, hurricanes. What if you're unsure of your next steps in life, whether that's for schooling or where you go to work or relationships. If your car breaks down again. If, you, if the traffic around here keeps getting worse, if inflation never stops, if you accidentally deleted a paper you've been working on for a month, if you aren't accepted into the college of your choice, if he or she turns you down, if you hate mowing the lawn and it's going to become Florida here, I mean, summer in Florida once again, right? Little things... It's a scale, whatever. All 
of these are more opportunities. I mean, we could make a list as long as the county of different little things that really get us un get under our skin, frustrate us, make us take matters into our own hands, even just in the moment. But all these things are opportunities to cling to Christ every bit as much as the persecution and major disasters. They are opportunities to practice in small ways what we need to be doing when the big things come. They're ways to worship the Lord with your trust and obedience and attitude, your heart, mind, and strength. Does it help to tell you not to get angry, not to get frustrated, not to panic, not to be fear or be anxious or anything like that? Sometimes. Sometimes it can help a little to remind someone of the truth, remind people of God's faithfulness and stuff. Sure. But you must be the one to run to the Lord with all of it. Scripture doesn't just say, don't worry. It does say, don't worry. It just doesn't stop there. Philippians 4, 6 through 7 says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Run to the Lord with this. Run to the Lord with your gas bill. I don't, just run to the Lord with all of it. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. That's our attitude we go with. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Consider how Jesus confirms who will be saved in Matthew 24. He says, after talking about a bunch of end times stuff, but the one who, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this same, this same sentiment is repeated at least five other times in the New Testament. Praise the Lord that this is not meaning that we need to hold on with our white-knuckled, teeth-gritted resolve. But 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, He will keep you strong. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ returns. Guys, we need to run to him for his power and peace to endure this exile. So finally, enduring exiles must be alert. We can get comfortable. We can get easily lulled to sleep. We can sort of ooze into the mold of our culture and become complacent and ineffective very easily. I think this is, I really feel like this is one of the biggest battles of my life. Um, and when things get hard in life or in ministry or just in the world, it's really easy to want to give up. Even to hope that, that Jesus might come back sooner than he was planned or take you home sooner than he planned. But scripture is powerfully clear regarding how we're to function as enduring exiles. And here's just two examples. Mark 13, 33. Again, Jesus talking about end time stuff. And then he says, and since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. And 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 6, but you aren't in the dark about these things. Also talking about end time stuff, these things, but you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, for you are children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and the night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. 
So I contend that Daniel 8 teaches that God is sovereign over the succession of world powers and he prepares his people to endure suffering that they cause. We need to run to him with whatever level of suffering from, from, from the, the hangnail to the hangman. I just came up with that on the fly. We, we've got to run to him with all of it. He wants us to. He wants us to depend on him. What's too small? Nothing. Now, if you have ever needed a reminder of the best evidence of God's love for you, or that he is the one who has done all the work to bring you to himself, and that all that's left for us to do is believe and trust him, and that he's even the one that's going to keep you strong to endure, communion is a great one. It's an opportunity for everyone who has repented of their sin and put their faith in Christ to come together for a tangible, symbolic reminder of Jesus' sacrifice and a reminder of our commitment to love and follow him, to take part in his body to, and his suffering and his glory. But before we do this, uh, we should make sure we're clear about who this is for and, and why we do it. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven through 30 says, So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have even died. Now, when he says honoring the body of the Lord, he doesn't mean like make sure you cross yourself first or something like that. What Paul means about taking communion unworthily uh, is, is seen a couple ways. I'm going to give you two ways, but the second one has kind of two parts. First of all, first and foremost, I know they're equal, uh, doing so, taking communion without personally repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus' sacrifice for forgiveness from your sin and to make you right with God. 2 Corinthians 5.17 helpfully puts it this way. This means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. Another translation says a new creation. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. If you don't have this new life in Christ yet, if he hasn't made you a new creation or a new person yet, you're not born again yet, then this memorial meal isn't for you just yet. But if you're interested in finding out more about that, you have questions, you have doubts, you have objections to what I just said, please come talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of our members. We would love to engage you with that and, and explore further where you're at with the Lord. The second way that it would be inadvisable or, or improper to take communion is for a follower of Christ who has this new life, but who is consciously holding on to sin rather than repenting of it and leaving it behind as they continue to follow Jesus. So if you're actively engaged in attitudes or actions that you know are dishonoring to the Lord, either repent of your sin by surrendering to him Surrendering those things to him, whatever they may be, by faith and moving past them to continue in your newness of life you've already gotten. 
or hold off on taking communion today. And as sort of a subset of having something like that going on, doing so, taking communion while causing division in the body would also be inadvisable. Uh, because 1 Corinthians 10, 16 through 17 implies that communion is also an expression of our blood-bought unity that we share. So if you're causing division in this church or the church in general, the church at large, um, you need to repent of that and make plans to repair any damage you've caused, or you should not take communion today. Now, these instructions aren't meant, as, uh, meant to demand that you have articulated every single sin you have done, and since the uh, last time I took communion, it has been 2,391 sins since last month. You know, anything like that, not like some kind of dirty laundry list you have to have run through with God. Nor does it mean you have to have made amends with everyone involved in whatever sin we're talking about before you come. It simply means that if you have confessing to do, if you have repenting to do, do it. And if you have relationships that need to repair or things you need to address, follow through with that repentance after we're done here. And remember that we come to the Lord's table the same way we came to Jesus the first time to receive new life and be made a new creation, be made acceptable to the Lord. And that is by his grace. And we receive that grace through repentance and faith. We don't earn it by repentance or obedience or by taking communion. So if there's nothing else that's coming to mind for you along those lines to deal with before the Lord and maybe one another, um, here's some reflection questions to help you personally uh, process the message. First, how do you handle it when things don't go according to plan? Two, and maybe take some time on that one. You might have a list. I, anyway, these all came, by the way, a lot of this came from personal experience in the last week and a half, so we're all doing this together. On what are you basing your hope for the future? Your expectations, assumptions, and interpretations? or on God's actual promises and character? Three, how can you practice enduring patiently this week as we live as exiles here on earth, in the small things even? And in what ways does the promise of 1 Corinthians 8 comfort you? And I included it here and on the paper and everywhere so that you'd re be reminded of it. And I'm going to read it. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be free from all blame on the day when the, our Lord Jesus Christ returns. How does that, in what ways, get specific, how does that comfort you? So take some time to process this and whatever else God may have laid on your heart, and I will invite you guys soon.